because the practice of Theravada Buddhism is not predicated on belief or belief in a deity, is it a religion? Why not? I, I, an anthropologist would call it a religion. Yeah, we're priests. <laughs> not you. <laughs> uh, we have a liturgy, and then we have texts. So anthropologists define this religion. If you define uh, the word religio, uh, it's like yoga. You, you bind yourself to something. So we're binding ourselves to a lifestyle uh, for liberation. If you, if you think you need a deity uh, to define it a religion, then you have to define what the deity is. And if you, if you read Karen Armstrong's book on the history of religion, we, on the history of the history of God, isn't it? Uh, yeah, that's an excellent book. Uh, because if you go through it, you see Judaism, Islam, and Christianity have had ways of describing Yahweh in ways that are very close to the way we describe the unconditioned, the uncreated, the original, and unformed. So these kinds of questions, you know, there's a whole, what do you mean by deity, what do you mean by God, and so on. But most teachers say, well, I don't know what it is, it's just what it is, you know. Here we are sitting together kind of thing. Um, but anthropologists would say it's definitely religion. Ah, oh, those are the easy ones. <laughs> okay, I, I'm reluctant to, 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 to pile into this because, you know, on the, on the second last day of retreat, you're probably enough with the concepts. Um, give, me, give me a bedtime story. But since this is a, you know, it's my job. Okay, so in Theravada Buddhism, we have the stream enter path. So first of all, in Theravada Buddhism, you have um, stages of, call it freedom. And the first stage is called stream enter. Then there's once returner, non-returner, and arahant. And these are, these are, are, are um, words in Theravada which people get very um, doctrinal about and get very, very stuck on, too. Um, so the idea that someone is but becoming a stream enter is already a wrong view from Buddhist perspective. I am someone who has attained something, is what we call Atavada, personality view. So if someone says to you they're a stream enter, <laughs> uh, red flag. Because the very statement doesn't make sense. So what this, so where this comes from is a, is a, a, a list of things we call the ten fetters, and in the ten fetters, the thir- first three fetters define the uh, being who who re- really has an access dhamma. And when you access dhamma, then you begin to re- uh, release, um, say, anger and 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 greed and fear, and those things begin to be released from consciousness and the mind gets more and more freedom that's the idea so of these of these uh, three fetters uh, the first is I, I've kind of alluded to them a little bit but anyway the person who asked this book asked this question you can also refer before I forget to Ajahn Sumedho's book called Don't Take Your Life Personally it's a brilliant book and it, it, it refers throughout the book to these three fetters so the first fetter is called Sakaiditi, personality view, and it's the kind of coarse sense of self which arises through, with thought. 
So quite simply, it's when when there is uh, when anger is coming up into the mind, say, and there's a belief in the anger and the narrative and the thinking. It's not fair. I'm going to get back at that guy and I'm going to hit him. And da, 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 da. that's personality view. You're taking it personally. Now, obviously, it is personal, but in terms of stream of consciousness, what you want to get to is anger is like this. So when you see anger as an object rather than being the subject, then you're 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 dealing with that first fetter, and you can see that makes sense, doesn't it? Like like the difference between just being caught up in the storyline and narrative and seeing, oh, this is a mood. So then then you can see the Dharma comes in because you're seeing this mood is an ichadukanata. It's changing, it's, con- it's dependently originated, all the different teachings can come into play. But as long as I take it personally, e- even if I hate, even if I think I shouldn't have it, I'm still taking it personally. You know, I shouldn't be angry, I'm still taking it personally. It's not seeing it as dharma, as a condition, as a natural phenomena. So that's called the, the, the first fetter. The second fetter is Sila Bhatta Bharamasa, and I alluded to that by talking about um, uh, idealism. So Sila Bhatta Bharamasa gets translated as superstition or attachment to rites and rituals. Um, so then you think, well, I'm not superstitious. Uh, I, don't, I don't do this incense stuff and... That's all Asian mumbo-jumbo. But then I, you know, I ask you, what about idealism? And you say, well, yeah, actually. And what about cultural conventions that you hold on to? Uh, and then uh, how, do you, how do you adapt to other cultures? Or do you just hold to your culture? And you say, actually, yeah, there's a lot of stuff there that I hold on to and believe I am. And I am fearful of, or I think I must be. So it might be around gender, it might be around uh, all, all manner of things, but you know, just just the other the other day when I mentioned that, you, you you think how idealism really blocks you to see dharma. You have an ideal that you should always be compassionate, say, and and then you feel anger. Now, if you're not noticing that ideal and you're attaching to it, you can't see the dharma of anger, and so anger can never be released, right? But if you see, oh, there is there is this aversion to the aversion. Uh, there's the, the wanting to get rid of the aversion, uh, and that's from idealism. You say, well, attachment to idealism. You start to see the dharma of the whole shlamazo. You know, you see it as dependently originated, as anicca dukkha, not all these different terms we use. Uh, and that, that's easy to say, but some, some of those things are so close. Uh, um, like the classic one I like to mention is in, in Thailand, um, there's a lot of etiquette around uh, the way you're, you, you place your body in a group, and especially in a monastery, and especially with monks, uh, or, or a Buddha image. There's a lot, of, a lot of etiquette around that. And one of the ways that we're supposed to sit in front of a, uh, a senior person or a shrine is to have the leg back like that, uh, which we call, they call pakpiyap in, in Thai. I can't do it now, my knees are shot. But you, you know, supposed to sit like that, and uh, so sometimes we see like a Thai woman and married to a Westerner, and they'll sit down, and the the Westerner is just sitting like this, and the wife keeps slapping his leg. <laughs> She's half his size, right? And and she 
and oh, you put the leg back, and he's, he's in incredible pain because he's never sat this way before. And then he gets his leg out front, oh, back. <laughs> and that's cultural convention. But she's been so, so, so conditioned that this is, uh, this is polite that emotionally she says, even though I explain it to her, she says, yeah, yeah, and then she still does that because <laughs> she's so conditioned. And that's cultural conditioning. Uh, or, or say in Thailand, if you, if you stick your feet out uh, towards a, a, a shrine or an elder or a monk, you know, that's, that's like farting in public. <laughs> it's, you just don't, you don't do that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so then, then you get a Sri Lankan person for whom that's, that's not really strong etiquette, and you get a Thai person sitting side by side. And so the Sri Lankan person, oh, my legs are hurting, and the monk doesn't care. And they relax, relax, stick your legs out, Thai person. <gasps> and, and they just, like, it just hurts. <laughs> Even though they're not doing it, they're so conditioned, that's rude, you can't do that. Once I was... Uh, uh, I was I was on the metro uh, on the on the tube in London, and I, I was with a Thai friend. <laughs> and you know, in Thailand, uh, women don't get close to monks. You just don't do that. You give them a lot of space. So I'm I'm at the door of the. the I, we're ready to get off. So I get up. I get to the door, and Pong is is kind of behind me, and this Western woman she just comes and stands beside me. So, you know, he panics and he pulls her away. I said, don't do that! I get arrested! Now, it's easy to see it in another culture, but it's very hard to see it in your own culture, or in your own family, you know, whatever. But you can, you can, you can, um, you can see how that sense of identity around a ritual, an ideal, uh, a superstition, it'd be very, very hard to, to um, you, you couldn't practice Dhamma because that would always be the way your, you, yourself would get defined and you always get stuck there. Ghosts. Like Thailand, is it, people are raised on frightening ghost stories. So, so like in, at Wat Nanachat, we had a, could, Wat Nanachat is the international monastery which we started in 1975 and it was, it was built in a, in a charnel ground where they burn people. So we Westerners, we thought, oh, great, yeah, a piece of land. We, no Thai stayed there, no Thai monks stayed there for three or four years. They're all afraid of ghosts. Now we, we're all looking for a ghost. <laughs> really? We're kind of going out in the forest with our torches. <laughs> and, and, and that's... Now, it, it's not to say that ghosts don't exist, but why is like one culture, you know, like, where are they? And the other called, no way. In fact, there was one kuti that kept falling down. A tree fell into it. And we, actually, we had to close it down because we thought there was a ghost there. But that didn't mean we're still looking for it. <laughs> so, again, it's easy to see another culture. It's hard to see your own culture. Um, but... I, I, yeah, the, my, my sense of it is like the, 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 the things that we are raised that a man should be, that a woman should be, that, you know, like, like maybe um, 
a, a lot of people suffer from from guilt that have been raised in like maybe sometimes from Catholicism. I meet I meet people who have a lot of guilt because that whatever unfortunate condition they had there has created a lot of guilt around things. And and even though you you know it's it's really not rational, their conditioning, cultural conditioning, has created that. It might be from family. What a uh, you know what uh, that you should always be grateful. You know, something just simple as that. You should always be grateful. And then when you don't feel grateful, you know, I'm, you know, you feel guilty because you don't feel grateful. And then you and then you pick that idea up and bring it to Buddhism, and 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 you know the monk says, you know, gratitude's the basis for enlightenment. I should be grateful. You go back to that rather than you know, well, what does that mean in terms of development? And so many ways you might think of that. So that's called the second fetter. And the third fetter is is vichikicca, which is doubt, and that's basically thinking. That's the mind which is which doesn't know how to just be silent with the way things are, and always needs to kind of get in there and figure it out. And and so it's, and 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 like if you just took it as doubt, uh, if you like, I often, you've probably heard me say this that we we when you feel when when you have an answer, you feel you feel confident. When you have a doubt, you don't feel confident. So if I say sh- something to you which is reassuring about your practice, and then you feel confident, yeah, yeah. But if I say something to you, oh boy, you're, you're pathetic. <laughs> right? You walk away, oh, I'm, I'm pathetic, I don't know what I'm doing. Or I hate that monk, or whatever. But if you, if you always want the mind to have the confidence of an answer, you'll never be free of intellect. Because the nature of intellect is that it has doubts, it has answers, and it doesn't have answers. So in science, you know, we... Well, it's interesting, actually, what science is trying to figure out the kind of basics of matter, and it just keeps slipping through the fingers. You know, it gets more and more nebulous. But that's, that's a digression. But, but, like, so if you get... If you're, if, you're, if, you know, if you're sitting and you get a question come up, and you can say, oh, that's doubt, feels this way, that's... Then that's dharma, the dharma of doubt, and then it ceases. And then you don't have to go to intellect. But if doubt comes up, and then you need an answer, then what you're doing is you 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 you're reacting with desire <coughs> to the discomfort of not knowing, seeking a kind of knowing answer. But the real knowing is the awareness of doubt as a as a condition, and the awareness of confidence as a condition and not confidence self doubt and that and that's very hard to do if you're if you have a lot of investment in intellect you know that that like if you're you know intellect solves problems so if you have a doubt let's solve the problem let's think about it but that'll just spin you around it'll really spin you around which isn't denying the usefulness of doubt so of course one of the things that buddhism has learn to do, and, and, and Christianity, I would say, Mr. Christianity, is actually use doubt to stop the mind. So you have um, the, the, the koan method, or the, the Chinese, the huato, the who am I, which Advaita uses, who am I? Now, if you try to figure that out, you're dumb. Because <laughs> you'll just be thinking and thinking and thinking, I am this. And but if you take that doubt, because the th- interesting thing about doubt is that it stops the mind. Even for a split second, who am I? 
And if you can, if you can see that that, actually, that space and gap with no thought is very interesting, then you, you go beyond doubt. Which doesn't mean that you never doubt. That, that's what some people think. They think that the fetter of doubt means that you have absolute confidence in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, and that you never doubt. I don't see it that way. I don't see it that way because there's nothing actually wrong with doubt. You need doubt. I mean, it's, it's a natural phenomenon. I would see it as the attachment to the to needing to, to needing an answer. And notice that silence is not an answer. It's not a conclusion. Like when I say it's like this, it's not some kind of conclusion like 42 or 86 or something like that. It's it's changing all the time. But the mind which knows. That's, that's what we're looking at. So these we call the three fetters. For, and, and so when those three fetters are not operating, uh, then the mind knows Dharma. Now you can see if someone says, I am a stream enter, what do you mean you're a stream? What about Sakaiditi? Personality of you. You're taking this personally. So what happens is people get some kind of experience of, of emptiness or whatever, which happens, which is important. And then they... Then they uh, claim it as a, a personal attainment, and then Ajahn Chah says, go back to the cushion. Because that very sense of me being someone who owns something is what, what you're trying to let go of and just see stream of consciousness. So people can get stuck in kind of... Now also, you do have like what you might call like epiphanies, right? Where, where the mind will, will touch the deathless. And I think most, I think most of my my peers have had experiences like that. You know, I've had I've had experiences as a child that touched something which was so profound that I could not, I couldn't rest until I understood that. Right? And so there's that also enters you into a search that is leading to the unconditioned, but the search has to then. Um, be implemented by letting go of this whole sense of self, uh, becoming these three fetters. Then, in the next two stages, it's interesting. It's uh, there's they call they say it's the, the attenuation of, of 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 greed and ill will, and that for me is interesting. It's like that's when stuff starts to fall away, you know. And you can see how when you when you know anger is anger and you don't take, you know, you don't get caught in the narratives, it does begin to release. Now I found that with fear, that when fear, fear began to uh, be purified through consciousness was when I didn't take it personally, when I knew it as, as an objective experience, which doesn't mean it made it pleasant, but it meant that it, now when it came up, uh, I, I no lo- the, there was no longer attachment to it. So then... Its cessation took about 10 years. <laughs> Just because you get that insight, that doesn't mean you get a lollipop, right? <laughs> it, 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 and like I said, it gets worse sometimes. Because now, oh, wow, there's a bit of work here. There's a, yeah, and, and then you bear witness. But your bearing a witness now is coming from right understanding when, when those, when those, when those uh, fetters are, are, are not there. So you could see, like, so I can I just talk about, say, fear, that as long as I was trying to figure out the fear, why am I afraid, and what, what, what practice do I need to do, I was never witnessing it as dharma. It was always my problem that I have to figure out. 
And Ajahn Chah, would, Ajahn Sumedho says, just welcome it. Welcome it. Easy for you. <laughs> <laughs> so then, of course, there's the insight into what metta meant. That, that, that compassion is the acceptance of the way things are. And then, then it really began to be okay, although it was still kind of, kind of unpleasant. Um, so, so the person that asked this, please do look at Lompo Sumero's book. Uh, it much better. And this was he gave he gave these lectures to the summer school in Leicester over a period of time, and he was he was he was on this theme a lot. So that was uh, and what was else in there? If we practice awareness and meditate, are we working on the self-view factor? Hopefully, you may or may not. You may be practicing with the idea of attainment. So this is one thing that, that it's a controversial thing, this, this uh, uh, stream entry thing. There's an there's a argument been going on for 2,500 years about this. Um, and uh, so some, some, some people pick it up and and get into this attainment mode. I have to get stream entry. And to me that would, that couldn't work. Because it would be about self becoming and time and craving. And, and as long as the mind is doing that, it's not aware of the way things are. It's not aware of Dharma. So my vision of Dharma is things falling away rather than attainments. That works for me. Now, not that attainments don't work, but I know for myself, it, it, it seems it's more like things falling away. So the three fetters, if you think about that, it's like they're not operative. It's not like I'm getting something. It's just that delusion is not operative. It's like, like if I clean my glasses or put them on. Will it be doubt if one thinks that we will never attain the stream enter? And so this is... This is kind of, uh, what would you call it? Not orthodox, it would be cultural, cultural Theravada Buddhism uh, in, in Theravada countries says, you know, this will take you at least six million lifetimes. <laughs> or how many million? <laughs> um, so the idea is that I'm, I'm just a Mickey Mouse practicer and I can just make a little bit of good come on, then maybe some future, which is all Sakayaditi. It's all self-view, right? Um, so, uh, just create, you know, like creating a sense of self that I can never do this. If you see that as Dharma, you've let go of Sakayaditi. You know, I, I will never be enlightened. And then there's nothing. I am enlightened. Same nothing. <laughs> Same space, right? So, so cult, and this is one of the cultural attachments that exists in Theravada Buddhism. This idea that realization or enlightenment is so so far beyond anyone's uh, possibility, and then people like Ajahn Chah come along and say, "No, no, this is not. It's not beyond our possibility." Um, and that, that's very much Sila Bhattaparamasa, this kind of cultural attachment that, that you, can't, you can't do it. Fortunately, Westerners don't suffer from that. 
Um, but you start to read that literature, and it, it, and it kind of becomes insidious. I have to attain this. And there's arguments about what it is. So we had one, one of our monks way back kind of said, I'm a stream enter, and I've attained stream entry. So he went around to all the senior monks and told them this. And they said, no, you're not. <laughs> he didn't like that. Is he right or is he wrong? Uh, so, but if you, if, you, if you take a position about that, but if you contemplate the, the it's like contemplating the jhana factors, similar. If you contemplate the, the, these factors, then you've got a way of working with it, you know. It's, then it becomes contemplative and reflective. So I did it. <laughs> I earned my rice. <laughs> but that way I did that. contemplating rebirth in this life, considering dependent origination, this would be possible at the end of life situation leading to in the same way that I can't quite understand that. So we, we you know we have this idea that we've been wandering around for millennia, not millennia, for millennia, millennia of lifetimes, right? in samsara, and here we are. So that's, and we have the law of karma and so on. Um, the idea of the unconditioned is that which is beyond karma. So uh, the idea of good karma, and you know, this, this, is, this you have to take on belief or disbelieve it, but the idea of good karma is it creates the, the, uh, the causes for uh, a good life now, and propitious, propitious, there's a word, propitious rebirth <laughs> in the future, right? Uh, and that vice versa, you know, if you're naughty, then it's not going to be good. Uh, so do good, refrain from doing harm. But then the idea of, of, of the unconditioned is that be, it's beyond karma. It's beyond that. That, 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 that circular. So you, you can see when, when you are uh, aware of the way things are and you don't attach to them, you don't create a sense of self. You don't get reborn into it. There is no perpetuation of either good or bad. You, you fall into that which is beyond good and bad. And that's the idea of, of liberation. So whether, whether you believe in rebirth or not, um, the, the ideas of come are interesting because it does say it's a moral universe. It's not a materialistic philosophy. So if you just take it that consciousness functions in a, in a moral universe, just that, you know, whatever you, rather than define it as birth and uh, rebirth, well, that's a, that's a huge thing, isn't it? Uh, that's, a, that's a big one to kind of bring into your worldview. But then... And then, like for traditional Buddhists, it's a way, um, like, like the, the, what the philosophical question is, why do bad things happen to good people and why do good things happen to bad people, right? That's always the, the philosophical conundrum which is, which is given. And so, so Buddhism says, because of the law of kamma, you know, the beings are the owners of their kamma, heir to their kamma, born of their kamma, whatever they shall do for good or for ill, of that they will be the heir. And, and many Westerners don't like that because it sounds like crime and punishment, right? And so we don't like that. So if you see someone who is disabled, 
to think, well, you know, that's their kamma because of some action in the past. We find that repugnant in the West. We don't like that. And that's our culture. Um, how to use that? How to use those ideas in a skillful way? Well, how do you get to the sense of acceptance of what comes to you? Because that's, that's, all, that's all you really need to do. You need to come to a sense of acceptance. Well, this is the way it is now. Right? And if that teaching helps you, okay. If not, if it, you know, it doesn't kind of fit, okay. But somehow, whatever comes to us... So a lot of people find it really helpful to think, well, okay, this is my kamma. This is something I'm going to learn from rather than hating it or resent it. Others pe- people don't, don't like that. So it's not a requirement you believe in. It's more like, is it helpful as a reflective tool? I was talking to Aya. Just, she just had her 70th birthday. We had a lovely gathering at Satisarnia, and she was in fine form. And she was saying how, how strongly she believes in, in the law of kamma. So if she can't figure it out in terms of conventional functionality, then she just takes it as that. And that gives her a kind of stability of, of, of acceptance. But a lot of people find, you know, just that they don't really like that about Buddhism. And all you can know is what you know. You know, so rather than think you have to believe uh, in a whole thing, you can say, well, no, I find that, I find that bit, I, I'm quizzical. So what to do? Well, you could take it as a working hypothesis. You could say, well, what if that were true? Now, that's not a demand that you believe in it, right? But it's also not just rejecting it. You say, okay, what, what if that were true? What, what might that mean in terms of my worldview? And you can put it down. But then at least you engage in, 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 in those ideas rather than a demand that you, you know, do, like I was saying earlier, some kind of Buddhist catechism. You don't want, you don't want to go there. But, but this way of awakening, you can see it's not, it's not doctrinal. It doesn't, doesn't depend on belief. And it does agree with, like, and you'll find that in... You know, you'll find it in Sufism, you'll find it in Mr. Christianity, you'll find it in Meister Eckhart. Um, what's her name? The Avila? The, the Christian saint. Saint Teresa of Avila. You know, you'll find it in, uh, in the Shankaracharyas in India, Advaita Vedanta. So you find this idea, you know, throughout uh, spiritual literature, this idea of the, of the knowing in awareness. Um, the 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 beauty about I think Buddhism is that it gives you it gives you a path, it gives you psychological tools, it gives you uh, moral guidelines, it gives guidelines about um, the blessings. You know, there's, so there's a lot of really really helpful uh, guidelines around that, and I'm just touching a little bit. All right, I think that's it. So we'll close there. Andamayangamakataya sadhu karangadamase.